Hello, podcast listeners. It is your normal Healthcare Experience Matters podcast host, Casey Callanan. I am about to let Kathleen Lynham take over for a discussion on compassion, self-compassion, and compassionate leadership. But before I do that, I just want to remind you that for those looking to explore this topic more in depth, please consider attending the Certificate in Foundations of Compassionate Leadership event. This virtual training will take place on May 12th and May 13th, 2022 from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're looking for more information on the Compassionate Leadership Certificate event, please visit healthcareexperience.org slash webinars, and we will also include information for that event in the description of today's podcast. Now let's get to today's episode with Kathleen Lynham. And I uh, have the privilege of introducing Kathleen Lynham. Kathleen is an executive coach and senior advisor with the Healthcare Experience Foundation. And she's going to be walking us through a couple of key components while we're reflecting on this idea of why compassion now. So as Kathleen goes through her her content, I want you to be paying attention to how we're defining compassionate leadership and that connection we started to to talk about with Dr. Zas on how empathy, sympathy, and compassion, how these um, concepts kind of weave together where they're different and where they're the same. So with that, let me turn it over to Kathleen, and I'll let you take it away. Thank you, Ms. Lindley. It's great to be here. I'm going to guess that if you're assumed and employed by a healthcare organization, somewhere in your mission statement, your values, or even your vision statement, the words compassion or compassionate care are written. And I'm going to guess that it's heralded probably as key to who you are and what you do. And we've heard that through so many of our own little personal sharings. But one question we wanna explore today is because you work for an organization to committed to providing the best patient or client experience, are you therefore more compassionate towards yourselves, your staff, Ultimately, are you an organization of compassion? And just from the little bit that I've heard from all of us already, we probably have an opportunity to improve that, right? It's certainly starting with self-compassion. Some new research that was just released, part of our role as an executive coach, and just a little history here. I'm I'm an old nurse. I'm a nurse for 44 years this May. I've been in healthcare all of that time. Um, I started out as a staff nurse, became a nurse manager, director, administrator, eventually a chief nursing officer, and did that for 35 years in operations. In the last 10, 11 years, I've been doing executive coaching. And so, you know, part of being a, a good coach and a good leader goes back to that trust. You have to have trust. The person you're working with has to have trust. So, Um, This is really a a personal important thing for me. And I I just wanted to share the research that was just published this month in HBR was um, about the emotional and mental challenges that we're all having, especially since COVID. And what this research said is that we in healthcare organizations, perhaps we need to relook at our missions and maybe expand those missions that have been primarily about providing the best patient experience to include 
and expand that goal to providing the best employee experience. You know, we've been bombarded with the new headlines, the news headlines in the last few weeks about is the year of the great resignation. And as we in HEI have been, um, HHF have been coaching organizations around the country, we've heard for the past year many of the laments of executives who have been trying to reduce staffing shortages, retain their best. And so we believe this foundation's course will help us all begin to understand what exactly expanding compassion beyond the patient care might require and what outcomes it may achieve for us individually and for collectively. So there's my little picture. I don't really look like that anymore, but what the heck. So what are my objectives? One, why is compassion needed now? I bet you could all answer that yourself, but I'm gonna give you our perspective. Describe the impact of compassion on the human body. I got to sign this because I'm the nurse. And the truth of the matter is I'm going to give you the Jersey version of it because I think the neuroscience is important for us all to be always take time to reflect and remember. Three, we have to differentiate. And I love that Dr. Zoss talked about the different roles of compassion and empathy. And four, recognize the effect pain and suffering can also have on your team. And those of us that, you know, I heard one of our managers struggling with their own ability to be compassionate amidst all of the struggles and suffering you've seen. And so we're going to talk a little bit more more about that. And then I'm going to briefly talk about compassionate leadership and setting up uh, my colleagues for later later on today. So as an old um, Catholic high school girl, anybody took Latin, we remember um, the the Latin derivative of uh, compassion is compate, to suffer with. And it is very different than empathy and all of that. So I want to talk a little bit about who is suffering now. Every one of us, wherever you are, have a story where we've witnessed suffering and and that suffering impacts us, right? It really does. But I want us to think about suffering. Yes, we, we know since COVID we are, but is it all from COVID? And I, I think that it's important for us to recognize that one of the unspoken realities of life and organization is that people suffer every day. Someone who's just been told that they have breast cancer can, you know, may confront a jolt in their confidence or a sense of mortality. Someone who's feeling dashed hopes because they didn't get a promotion. And looking at the rest of these trigger lists here, a death of a family member or a close friend, the loss of a job, promotion, a loss of a pregnancy, security, home, marriage, friendship, life-changing diagnosis, fear about your family's health, sleepless nights filled with worry about my staff, patients, colleagues, our children, are we worrying about children and what's happening there, and family and friends in the military. There is so much suffering beyond, before, and through COVID. Suffering is happening, but, and this is the but that's just kind of, you know, um, wowed me, With all of these emotional things going on, we still have the expectation in many organizations that emotions have to be checked at the door, that people with these burdens, wherever they go, they carry them, and they're still expected to carry on and do their job and work accordingly. And how hard is that? How hard is that for all of us? And the cost? over $75 billion annually 
to ameliorate the cost from transition, from people leaving, from from help, um, from mental health issues. And so we know that the cost of suffering is only, only increasing. And with job stress and burnout has been estimated to cost uh, industries billions of dollars. Our question is, perhaps if grief and suffering could be healed more fully in our organizations if compassion was unleashed there. Is that something possible? Would we feel better? Would we be more comfortable doing that? And so then there's this to consider. Where did you learn about compassion? Did you learn about it in church, in your temple? Did you learn about it in school? How much education did you have in school? about compassion. Um, I'm privileged to be part of the the faculty working with um, residents uh, across the country, and we're bringing classes of compassion, empathy to to residents now because there's been a recognition that that has never been addressed, and Dr. Zoss talked about that. But certainly, I, I don't remember so much of that in nursing. What research have you read about compassion? And here's what I'm curious about. Do you see compassion regularly applied beyond your patients? Those of us that are working in healthcare, do we see it? Are we more compassionate to others? And I think the key and the clue probably is if we're having trouble being self-compassionate ourselves, it's really going to be hard to be compassionate to others. Kathleen, let me capture some of the comments coming through the chat box. So I'm seeing real life experience from a mentor in college, my mother, I learned about compassion from my adult children. So seeming the theme is family life experience. Uh, Kelly shares had to figure out a good bit taking care of patients in outpatient pharmacy and also being a parent of three kids. Excellent. Excellent. I love that we learned from our adult children. That's a wonderful way to learn. So we're always open for learning. Um, One of my favorite quotes is from Kozas, Barry Posner, and James Kauza, who have done 50 years of research on leadership. And they say the number one of the number one qualities of the exemplary leader is continuous learner. So the fact that we're open to learning is good. So what about this new treatment and this new medication? And I want to pause for a minute and tell you that over the last two to three years, Um, As um, part of our company, we have all spent the time where you're not been able to really research and understand what research is out there about compassion. And I want to highlight, and you're going to get that resource, and I encourage you to go to that resource page and look at um, what we have to offer you. But two people, two different groups I want to shout out. Two docs from New Jersey, Go Jersey people, from Cooper University down there. Two physicians wrote this book called Compassionomics, and they did this incredible retro view of all of the outcomes of compassion. And that's where all of this, these slides in my part are, are um, taken from. It's amazing what we have ignored in medicine and in healthcare about the work of compassion. And the other person I wanna do a shout out to for organizational compassion is Jane Dutton and her work at University of Michigan. She has done, her career is focused on on organizational compassion and the impact of compassion on organizations. So we have lots of um, opportunities for you to dive in deeper here. But would you be interested in this new medication? Reduces pain, reduces anxiety, reduces blood pressure, improves well-being. And yes, it varies by the individual delivering it. 
The cost of the treatment has a high re, uh, return on investment. And guess what? It has a positive impact on anyone who's providing. How wonderful. We all kind of have to come to our own definition of, of how we want to describe it. What the important thing is, is that it's always in response to suffering. It is always in response to suffering. And the other key thing about compassion is the response. You try to help. You try to do something. And I want to make note here that sometimes recognizing that someone is suffering could be hard. Sometimes they don't visibly show it. I'm Irish. I'm, I'm transparent. You can see everything on my face. Other people have learned to to mask those feelings. So part of good leadership is knowing where to look and what to look. And so the physiological response, here's the Jersey girl version of this. Basically being compassionate makes others feel better. When compassion is received on the human body, its greatest effect is on the autonomic nervous system. And basically it makes us feel better. When we feel that we're cared for, it soothes us. It, it actually um, oversees and has the oxytocin and all of that response that allows us the things that we can't control are, uh, we become calm. We have slower, deep breathing. And so it has a wonderful, wonderful impact on our body. And this is what it has overall on our body. Okay. It promotes healing from trauma. It improves the quality of life and palliative care. It reduces perception of pain and back pain and migraines. The foundation for every patient relationship is trust and compassionate touch helps build trust. It lets our bodies know when we're in a state of fear. Okay. When you're in a fear in a defensive mode, that means we're in fight or flight. There's no way that oxytocin can get through. We've got to do that touch so that people can relax and realize, ah, I'm cared for. I can relax. And then the opportunity to listen and be empathic happens. It improves functional impairment. It reduces suffering pain. And you know what? Wounds heal better. And what about the psychological impact? I think that's really important. And I, you know, I'm using a lot of military visuals here because, you know, our nation, we know our friends and family who've been in the military are suffering terribly for many, many reasons here. And so I, you know, we researched this and there's lots of evidence about this. So years ago in the 90s, there was lots of research on what was more effective, the which uh, pharmaceutical agent had the biggest effect on depression. And so what they did is they really weren't able to differentiate too many differences between the drugs. And so in 1995, they went back and looked at the psychiatrists that were treating the patients, and they created this thing called a relationship inventory. And this is what the inventory, the, some of the elements, and they asked the patients to evaluate their psychiatrists. And my friends, if the therapists demonstrated compassionate understanding, an authentic connection with, the patient, connection with the patient, an unconditional positive regard for the patient, they found that, uh, and the Yale redid this study, found that had the most positive effect on patients' response to reducing depression symptoms. Let me say it again. These 
uh, uh, relationship inventory, these criteria, these behaviors, when they were demonstrated, that's what had the most positive effect on a patient's response to reducing depression. So Duke, only in the last 10 years, wanted to know how does that happen? And so their study focused on and found out that when compassion can reduce feelings of hopelessness and demoralization, which ultimately helps motivate patients to take better care of themselves. And I bring up this little figure here of us with our patients, because if you understand the HCAPS survey and how we're all evaluated, are not these elements reflected in what our patients need today? And if you look at your employee engagement survey and you want to know what creates that bond, why do employees care and stay and why are they loyal and why are they engaged, meaning they're giving that discretionary effort and they have an emotional connection, it's because of these elements also as human beings. And so what does it do for those of us that give? Well, the bottom line is by giving it, you actually generate positive um, benefits on yourself. The, the, a compassionate action actually activates that pleasure circuit in the brain, which releases oxytocin, which is also known as the love connection, the love hormone, and you feel good. So it feels good to be good. And so some of us who are struggling with the self-compassion, this is a good boost. And we know from all of the research too that it has a positive effect on others. It's not just limited to those who are suffering. So employees and members who participate in responding, responding to suffering with compassion or simply witness others extending compassion they experience the beneficial effects also. They feel good about their organization. They feel good about how their colleagues are treated. It elevates them. And then it inspires those behaviors that we all need. So as we struggle with losing the good people that we're, we're losing and seeing this great resignation, it behoves us and it makes sense. And it's what we want to do, but we just haven't had the time to think about being compassionate and how it can help us. And without a doubt, the neuroscientists of science of gratitude, it feels good to help. And it promotes the, the production of serotonin and all of those in the, um, which are a little bit, you know, shorter acting, but it also promotes us caring for each other. And, and that important thing that we need as a team. So when we think about compassionate leadership, what is it and why do we need it? I want to start with this quote. In times of distress, we turn to authority. To the breaking point, we place our hopes, our frustrations on those whose presumed knowledge, wisdom, and skill show the promises of fulfillment. So think back at the beginning of COVID. What did you do? Think about the leader that had the greatest influence on you and your organization. Because we look to leaders for guidance, particularly in times of suffering, as we look for a vision of compassion, that emotional tie between leaders and followers in the midst of adversity. So look and think about your leader and think about yourself. Were you A, light at the end of the tunnel for the people you work with? Was that leader light for you? Or was that leader an oncoming train that you just wanted to get out of the way and hope to God you didn't run into them? 
that's the significance of leadership, right? We can either be the light at the end of the tunnel, giving people hope and vision that we can get through this, or we can be someone they try to avoid and not want anything to do with. So what is compassionate leadership? It is a choice. It's acting with purpose. It's empathic. It's exploring issues that value the strength of others. It is positive and looking forward. And it is about inspiring and influencing others. And it is a principle that can be learned and practiced. What it is not is a solo voyage avoiding help. And those of us who have achieved our roles because we're good at what we're doing, sometimes asking for help is not easy. It is not about judgment. It's not about avoiding conflict or courageous conversations. It's not withholding forgiveness for yourself. It's not static. And when I think about this, I wanted to share that um, in in being vulnerable and, and transparent, that as a leader, you know, for the last 35 years, basically, I took pride and felt keenly responsible for not bringing my baggage to work, whether it was a divorce that I went through, custody challenges with my child or breast cancer. My motto is carry on, be strong and do what you have to do. And I want to ask you, do you see that written anywhere about what it is? It is not. And so all of us have the opportunity to learn as we're going forward. And so we also have to think about the influence you bring. We love this. This was in Indiana University Health. And I think we might have somebody from there, but please take responsibility for the energy you bring into this space. Your words matter, your behavior matters, and so on. So take your deep breath. Make sure your energy is in check before entering. Be mindful. And remember about Simon Sinek and the work that he's done about leaders and our job. Human beings, we're social. We want to be together. We want to protect each other, but we need to have that feeling of cared and connected. And without a doubt, a compassionate leader will make the difference in not only creating, but supporting those circles of safety as we move forward, which are all built on the foundation of trust and someone cares about me, which the only way we can do that is through our words and actions. And what happens if we don't do that? So when trust and feeling that we're not cared for, how do we respond? We become more selfish and aggressive. Our cooperation declines, leadership falters. We're not out to help colleagues or organization if I don't feel helped for. So it's the opposite effect of compassion. When we witness compassion, we're able to be compassionate. When we witness violation of that and lack of, of lack of caring and trust being broken, we become more cynical and less desirous to help others. Think about art there. So what's the process for beginning? We begin with self-compassion. And boy, do we have a lot of work to do there, right? But the process for leading with compassion is fivefold. Begin with ourselves, and then notice, interpret, feel, and act. And what I want to challenge you to do is instead of only thinking about with our patients and how to expand our staff teaching with our patients, I want you as the leader to think about how can I apply this with the staff I work with, with my peers and my colleagues. So notice, beware of the daily life pressures or productivities that can reduce our capacity to notice suffering. Be intentional to create rich forms of interaction. Turn on your peripheral vision to notice subtle signs that someone might be struggling. 
create trust for others to share their circumstances. As I'm vulnerable and transparent with you, I think it's important for us to also know um, that we need to do the same thing for others and be mindful of that. Interpret. This requires self-awareness and social awareness, okay? It's really, really, and this is critical for all of those. When we start noticing the behaviors, perhaps someone's been late lately, someone's been distracted, more frustrated, um, acting out, not showing up on time, leaving early. What do we usually interpret that as? Hmm, something negative. They're not with us. They're not focused. We judge. We judge so quickly. So interpreting requires self-awareness and social awareness, and it requires us to reach out and feel. And so, you know, I, I want to, um, you know, make sure that we take time when we think about this uh, empathic concern is the feeling of compassion that's suffering with. And I, I got to give a shout out because um, as a nurse, I'm not trained necessarily to feel. I'm trained to assess, plan, and move into it. And uh, that wasn't helped by the fact that I was, in my word, raised by orthopedic surgeons. I was a new nurse manager to orthopedic surgeons, and they're they're tough and brutal, and I love them. And so kind of grew my toughness. But I have been tempered over the years by a daughter and every sister and sister-in-law and every friend who's a social worker. And they have told me over and over again, mom, Kath, remember, you've got to to feel, you've got to be empathic, you have to validate concerns, you've got to normalize it for people and let them know they're not alone. And then you can move into that help part. Don't be jumping into action before you allow people to talk about where they are. And I'm not sure we all do that well, because we always want to fix things. And the final step is responding. And that's the action that recurs in response to suffering. And as I mentioned earlier, it's important when we see others reach, when we reach out with compassion to, uh, to lessen or alleviate others, it makes a difference on all of us. And so that's a key, key point that we need to do. It's not just noticing and observing. It's making an effort by something we say or do or touch. And so we wanted to take two minutes to just dis- explore the difference between empathy and compassion. And empathy is important. And I can't tell you how many classes we do with with physicians about empathy. Empathy is important for patients because that shows that you care. If you're able to say, wow, it looks like you're really struggling with this, or it looks like you're really frustrating, that means you get me, you understand. So empathy is important, but it's different. Um, It's different than compassion. So compassion is that emotional response to another's pain or suffering, which involves an authentic desire. It requires a personal connection. I'm an, an example is I'm going to be present, support grief with kindness. I'm going to sit down and display caring. Um, where's the difference? Empathy is a one-way street. It's detecting, processing, and understanding, and even feeling the emotional. But it can happen in a one-way mirror. We see it all the time as we're coaches. We'll talk to a physician or a nurse after that. What do you think that patient was feeling? Oh, they were scared. They were worried. What part of what you said validated that? Oh, I don't know how to do that. So empathy is critical. I don't want to ignore it, but I want to make sure we know the difference compassion, it goes in the other way. It's our responsive action towards those those who are suffering. It cannot happen in one way. And I think um, one of the um, empathy is the engine 
behind compassion. And so it's important that we recognize and build those skills. But why do we need both empathy and compassion? Greater than 50% of Americans do not find their healthcare system compassionate. And in many, many research, we've seen physicians routinely miss opportunities to respond with compassion. And we know that when providers have compassion for a patient, they are more likely to be meticulous about their care, have higher quality standards, and less likely to make a major medical error. So I hope I've given you some understanding of why the case for compassion, we first need to understand and commit to it. We need to say, yes, this is important. We need to then recognize our leadership influence. Are you a light at the end of the tunnel or are you a train? And how am I impacting those I work with? How are you open to being witnessing to compassion? Not just with our patients, but as a leader to those we work with, to our family, to those in our community. Because when that happens and we see people beginning to experience uh, compassion, it expands. And the ultimate goal is that we do have an organization that is comprised and built on, as Mark said from the very beginning, built on a foundation of compassion. Wouldn't that be a wonderful world? And so here's my key points. Suffering and compassion are critical and pervasive aspects of every organization. Yes, even before COVID, suffering Suffering was happening every day and continues to happen. Number two, by being blind to compassion, we're missing fundamental important aspects of organizational life when we're blind to it. Number three, with fresh eyes, and hopefully today and at the end of tomorrow, we've freshened your eyes, if you will, not just with Botox, but with a little little learning that there's much to see about organizations and organizing using the lens of compassion. And in healthcare, we know that we strive and we need to continue to strive and, in fact, improve our focus on compassion for patients and families. But we often miss the mark in recognizing the need for compassion with ourselves, our staff, and our colleagues. So when you're going into, you know, thinking about what can I do, be intentional. Bring your colleagues into frequent, close, and virtual contact. Are you listening more than speaking in your communications? Cultivate relationship-based connections that will help you identify when something seems wrong. Don't judge to that person that's looking at their phone or constantly checking out their phone that they're not interested. They're looking at the, at the um, whatever, but they may have something going on at home and take that cue and don't interpret and judge, interpret and ask. Develop those high impact questions to be comfortable asking about circumstances. Mostly be a role model to demonstrate the types of compassionate responses you would want to see from your colleagues. And that includes being vulnerable and being empathic and make daily habits. This is probably the most important thing about mindfulness, to be mindful and expressing genuine care, concern, and empathy for those you work with and those we care for every day. And I thank you for taking the time to listen. Uh, We end with this quote. Our sorrows and our wounds are healed only when we touch with compassion. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Healthcare Experience Matters. Healthcare Experience Matters is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation. To learn more, please visit healthcareexperience.org. That's healthcareexperience.org.